it's so easy. And I think in a busy life, if you're moving too fast, it's, it's incredibly easy to ask other people's questions and accept other people's answers to pause in those moments and say like, okay, so like, this is what I'm being told, but like, what is my question about this moment I'm inside of and, and how might I want to navigate it differently? I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is the journalist Courtney E. Martin, who's the author of the wonderful book, The New Better Off, which investigates the ways in which we are reinventing the American dream through new approaches to work, community, rituals, and spirituality. She's also the writer behind one of my favorite weekly newsletters. Courtney is an ardent believer that the unexamined life is not worth living, and as such is relentlessly inquisitive. And this obsession of hers with asking new questions and reframing old ones was the impetus for this conversation. At the turn of the year, she shared a series of 20 questions to help folks reflect on the past year and uncover the unexpected moments of meaning and surprise and even resentment that we experienced in order to get at what really drives us and what really lights us up so that we might use that as an internal compass to guide us into 2020. In this wide-ranging conversation, we take a deep dive into the power of asking yourself new and unexpected questions, examining what a successful adult life looks like, and how to uncover what Courtney calls your first question, the core curiosity that carries you through life. We also swap some of our own answers to our 20 questions ritual so you can see just how surprising some of the answers are. So let's go ahead and get started with one of my favorite topics questions. Hi, Courtney. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So a few years back, you wrote an interesting piece about first questions, and you told a story about the activist and journalist Dorothy Day. Could you talk about her story and this idea of first questions? Yeah. So Dorothy Day, um, who probably many folks have heard of, was this incredible Catholic uh, kind of radical. She co-founded the Catholic Workers Movement um, and just did a lot of work that I think of as, as sort of embodying some of the spiritual ideas that many of us proclaim to care about, but we don't sort of manifest in our lives very well. So she's a really interesting character to me. Um, and I had read that when she was a little girl, she uh, saw the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And saw, you know, 50,000 refugees um, fleeing from San Francisco by boat and being welcomed in various places. And, and that she wrote of that formative experience that it was this moment where she saw people uh, sort of show up as their best, most generous, most loving selves. And so it made her wonder at just eight years old, why can't people always care for one another unconditionally? Um, And I got really interested when I read that because I'm, I have two little girls and I think a lot about childhood and sort of the beauty of the kind of naive questions that children ask. And it, it started to make me wonder, is there a thread that, that we can all find in our lives of a question that we've been asking since we were a little kid 
and, and how might that animate what we choose to do as adults or how we might choose to think about our calling. Um, so I loved that inspiration. And you went on in that piece to, you know, talk a little bit about your own self-investigation. And so what ultimately did you decide your first question was? You know, I think in some ways I'm still <laughs> trying to figure it out. It's like, it's such a, a powerful um, inquiry that I think I'm still kind of wrestling with, but I did come to decide when I sort of like looked back at some of the some of my early memories and then some of the books I've written and some of the kind of movements I've been a part of, um, I realized that I'm often asking some version of how can we wake up from our own delusions and especially delusions about perfection or success. Um, I'm, as I've gotten older, I've tried that on in various ways, but you know, when I was in my twenties, I wrote a book about young women and perfectionism and body image. And that book for me was largely about sort of shedding a lot of female socialization about what women were supposed to be and how they were supposed to look and, um, what I called effortless perfection at the time. Um, and then I went on to write a book called do it anyway, the new generation of activists. And in that I was kind of trying to wrestle with what I felt like was this, um, socialization I'd gotten through the eighties and nineties being like a white privileged kid who was told like, you can save the world, you can do it all. And then I graduated from college and was like, actually social change is really complicated. And sometimes a white privileged girl is not the person best positioned to make that change. And so that was sort of a a shedding of a certain kind of delusion. Um, My most recent book was called the new better off reinventing the American dream. And that was this moment of me coming into my true adulthood and kind of asking what does the successful adult life look like? And it coincided with the, the bubble bursting in the economy and sort of everything crashing. So it was this great sort of personal political moment where I was trying to wrestle with the American dream and all of our ideas about it. So that was another delusion I was shedding. So I think I'm just kind of use my own developmental moments in life to look at bigger political, um, issues in this country and and try to kind of name the bullshit. Well, it's interesting. I just did an interview with Chani Nicholas, the astrologist who I really love. And, you know, I asked her at the end, we were talking about, she asks a lot of questions and um, her practice. And I asked her, you know, kind of what she thought the value of questions was. And she said, you know, that they really help orient you towards your inner wisdom, which I thought was a really beautiful way of looking at it. It sounds like from what you were just articulating, in some ways for you, it's a way of kind of reframing and then allowing you to like, you know, shed or maybe evolve beyond different beliefs, which is another really nice way of looking at it. Yeah. I think of, of questions like, you know, what is the delusion here that I'm trying to um, break free from, or like Dorothy Day's wonderful question, why can't we always love each other this unconditionally, um, as just vehicles for the examined life. You know, I'm someone who was uh, totally mesmerized by those ideas in like political theory one back in college about, you know, what does it mean to live an awake life, a life where you're constantly questioning and um, trying to shape these, you know, finite, precious days that we have on earth into something that actually does align with your own value system, as opposed to some sort of received ideology or, or dogma about 
who you should be or what you should want to do or how you should respond to other people or what you deserve, you know, all of these like very deep kind of existential questions. I've always um, sort of been that 20 year old sitting in the lecture hall going, oh my God, like all of life is one big experiment. So the better questions we can ask, I think the more interesting experiment we could make of our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. When I got, you know, prompted by you, I got really into um, trying to think about what my first question was. And yeah, did you think of it? I did. I mean, it's funny. It's probably something that would seem um, really non-surprising to someone who listens to this podcast, because it's interesting, this um, theme of like sort of slowness versus speed has been in my life for a really long time. I think for me, and kind of like you, I think there's multiple questions, but for me, one of the questions, big questions is like, how does this sort of trance of speed impact our quality of life, which is obviously sort of a core question of this podcast. But like 20 years ago, I wrote a college thesis about, um, that was really about Milan Kundera's novel, Slowness. And in that novel, he really compares, um, you know, sort of the speed of modernity to this kind of libertine, you know, enlightenment era kind of luxurious slowness. And it's this really like in-depth, you know, examination of that idea. And I was thinking back to when I was a kid and whenever my parents were kind of in a rush, you know, be incredibly like stressful and anxious and people would get really upset. And so, you know, I kind of had this like seed implanted of me of like, not wanting to rush or getting really upset when I had to rush. And so it's this kind of interesting, um, interesting theme. Oh, I love that. And I have, <laughs> like I mentioned, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, two daughters, and their sense of time just blows me away. I mean, the, the six-year-old now has started to understand time in the way that you or I would of like, there's a, day, a 24-hour day and there's a night and a morning and a, you know, mm-hmm. But the three-year-old is still in this zone where it, it's like it all blends together in this wild way and she takes naps. And so sometimes I think she even thinks every time she wakes up for a nap, it's like a new morning. And it's just like her her just experience of temporal existence is so deeply different than yours and mine at this point. And so it's really fun for me to think about you as like a three-year-old and what, <laughs> how you inhabited that, you know, you must have probably found some wonderful kind of flow in that, in the same way that I, I watch my little one Stella do. It's, it's a, it's actually quite inspirational. It doesn't fit very well when like you're trying to get their shoes on and get to pre yeah. but, um, <laughs> So I, I also empathize with your parents' frustrations, but <laughs> on a philosophical level, it's pretty amazing to witness. Yeah, just the level of pure presence. Yeah. So you revisited this idea of first questions in your newsletter recently and really sparked some deep investigation from readers, obviously, including myself. And a bunch of folks wrote you back and and shared some stories about their first questions. Were there any in particular that really kind of struck you? Um, you know, I don't think there was any particular one that struck me, but I was struck by the pattern of that many people's first questions derive from a sense of suffering. You know, it's, I mean, it was interesting with the Dorothy Day question that did derive from suffering in a sense, but it was the response to suffering that she witnessed. That was what uh, sort of transfixed her attention, which was how people showed up for one another in that moment and how beautiful that was. And I think a lot of people who wrote me 
about it were thinking about their own feelings of like profound loneliness as kids or watching people hurt one another as opposed to the the, mm-hmm. the Dorothy Day anecdote and sort of trying to understand why do people hurt each other and how can we do it differently. So I wasn't surprised um, by that. I mean, I think we all know that the old adage, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And, you know, just the notion that hardship is where some of the most important insights and wisdom are born. And so, I mean, that sort of aligns with that knowing of mine, but it did, it did feel sad. It felt like, Oh, these little, you know, we're all these little kids walking around trying to make sense of the world and, and witnessing things that really don't make sense, which is true. Like there's so much about the modern world that does not make sense. And, and I do, I do take comfort in um, the fact that we, as humans, we are able to hold on to that first knowing that certain things should not be the way they are, whether it's an outrage, you know, that like sort of little girl outrage that we can follow as an adult and try to, you know, pursue a calling that has something to do with that and make the world better. Or if it's, you know, just a little kid putting together that some way that our society functions doesn't make sense. And then kind of following that bread, those breadcrumbs, for the next, you know, four or five decades. Um, that to me seems really hopeful, even if the source of that questioning is sad. Yeah, no, it's true. So many of them seem to be like some sort of core, like wounding or something that you witnessed that was really painful that that drove that. I think one of them was that really got to me was where is home? You know, I've I've like moved so many times as a child and that one was really like Mm, I was thinking about that one. And and to your point, like, it seemed like there, you know, there, there's maybe the first question, but there, there are many. And I'm curious, you know, I think there will definitely be some folks listening who are probably like overachievers who are like, okay, like, what is my question? And then I'm going to be like really stressed out. <laughs> they can't figure it out. <laughs> like, what do you think is kind of the utility of doing this self-investigation in the first place? And And as you said, like, what if you can't find your question or you feel like there are like kind of many of them? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a lot of questions. I actually think that's wonderful. Um, I think I am someone who craves, I love to pattern keep and I love to connect dots and I love like taking really complicated things and trying to challenge myself to find that um, simplicity on the other side of complexity. Um, And so I think for me, the one question, you know, it just fits how I'm made, if that makes sense. It's like I want, I crave to understand my own instincts a little better, maybe because they often feel so disparate and all over the place. You know, I'm a journalist who writes about a huge range of stuff. And so there are moments when I think I'm very jealous of people who have a more linear path or a more uh, kind of a beat, uh, as it were, whereas like, I feel a little bit all over the place. So I think I crave some kind of internal structure that helps me be like, no, no, this all makes sense in some way. So for me, that's why the clarity of the one question feels good. So I think if it doesn't feel good to you, um, probably it means either that you're like me and it would feel really good if you could figure it out. And maybe you like try on a question for a season and say like, okay, for if I for the next month I see my life through this question lens and sort of watch what I'm attracted to or who I'm attracted to and does this fit that question, um, 
that that might be kind of a good experiment because then it doesn't have to feel like this is the one thing I have to decide animates my entire existence for the rest of time, but just sort of a like, you know, maybe this is a helpful question to try on for a little while. Yeah. Well, as you say, maybe it's, maybe it's just something that we generalists like really like yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a way of uniting <laughs> our disparate interests. But no, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Like I was thinking about recently, you know, this, this whole very deep, very longstanding trend of, you know, kind of thinking about this idea of like finding your passion in a career context um, and how stressful it is. And this kind of anxiety that it imparts to people thinking about, oh, I have to find my passion. But to me, like, it's much more useful to think about like finding your question rather than finding your passion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the things that, you know, like I was talking to a friend, for instance, who is in her late 50s and, um, you know, is in a very like high level position in the creative world is thinking about leaving that job. And I was kind of like, what am I going to do now? Like, I'm not done, but I'm sort of done with this phase, you know, and it's so many people in our, you know, come to that point in their lives and particularly, you know, kind of at this moment in time. And there's not like there isn't something to sort of service like that whole sort of group of people, you know, who are kind of a little bit older, but still have so many skills to bring. And so, you know, we were talking about this idea of like asking like, like, that's her question is like, where is this thing that I need, you Mm. know, and kind of thinking about, well, is there like, is there a, a career path or a passion that like kind of could be focused around that question. So I think it's kind of useful in that way too, potentially. Yeah. I love, I love thinking about it that way. I also think in, in my book, The New Better Off, I wrote a lot about the way that work was changing and just kind of the structure of the work world. And I came to think, you know, we should stop asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up and start asking them, how do you want to be when you grow up? Because I think it's also this thing about, you know, it, it's less clear these days. I mean, there, there are a lot less linear paths. Um, and from a negative perspective, the precarity, kind of the economic precarity that a lot of people are living through requires them to be generalist, requires them to have a lot of balls in the air. Um, so I think there's something about whether it's, you know, figuring out what your question is or just figuring out sort of how you need to feel in terms of a calling, like, are you a pattern keeper? Are you a translator? Are you a bridge builder? Are you a um, space uh, creator? There are so many ways to be within a, a professional context that might not actually translate to job titles that you've ever heard of. And I think that that's more and more true. Um, you know, I look at my kids and I'm like, who knows what they'll be or what jobs will exist or like, will they even have particular job titles? Um, so I, yeah, I think the more that we can get away from thinking of our calling as some kind of linear thing with a concrete title and more about the sort of things that animate us, the questions that make us feel alive, the, ways of being, um, that make us feel, you know, sort of most in alignment with who we were as, as kids when we, you know, speaking back to your question of, you know, you wanted to play with time, like what are the kinds of jobs and callings that you could do that would let you play with time? I think that's the kind of stuff that leads us to like truly fulfilling work as opposed to, um, what we think will 
bring some kind of status or achievement or, or a sense of success that ultimately feels like kind of a letdown. We have to take a quick break, but stay with me. After the jump, Courtney and I dig into her list of 20 questions for self-reflection and talk about how reframing your questions can enhance your moral imagination. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Every great idea deserves a great domain name. Which is why, when I was dreaming up my latest project, an online home for my Reiki practice, I zoomed right on over to Hover.com to see what URLs were available. Hover makes finding and maintaining your new domain name completely seamless. First of all, they have hundreds of different extensions to choose from, including all the classics like .com or .org, plus a bunch of new school favorites like .co, .io, or .design. But my favorite part is that Hover doesn't try to constantly upsell you. Whois privacy is included with every domain, and features like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain name to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. And if you have a bunch of websites like me, the more domains you register with Hover, the less you pay in renewals. They also have a refreshingly clean and simple UI that makes it super easy to do sometimes daunting tasks like setting up a new DNS record or repointing your name server. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. So kind of staying on this on this thread and in this territory of questions, you also created a list of 20 questions that you shared with your newsletter readers to kick off the new year. And it was really terrific, really thoughtful list. And I loved moving through them. And just to give listeners like a quick sample, um, I just want to read off a couple of them so I have a sense of what of what I'm talking about. One of them was, what was one of the moments you were most proud of this year? And what does that tell you about how you want to spend your energy, time, money in the coming year? What was your most overrated success? Something that you thought would feel great, but was then sort of a letdown. And uh, the biggest one, which was, what was the most sacred experience you had in the last decade? So what was the genesis of this list of questions? How did it evolve? You know, well, first of all, I, I'm a New Year's Eve baby. I was born on the last hour, ah. the last day of the 70s. So I have a thing about New Year's Eve, both like a love-hate thing. It's like I find it to be the most overrated uh, holiday possible. And then to add on your birthday, it's just like, you know, one heartbreak <laughs> after another. Um, but I also, I'm big on reflection um, and I'm big on ritual. And so I like sitting around at some point, maybe even not on New Year's Eve, but at some point at the end of a calendar year and saying, kind of taking stock with people I love. Um, and particularly love, you know, hearing their answers to these questions. Um, and I love being surprised by, it. I mean, I, my partner is pretty game for this kind of stuff and often he'll have answers to these things that I would have never known, even though I've lived with him all year long and, and witnessed so much of his life. So that, that is really fun and surprising. And I surprised myself. Um, so I think I basically was just kind of making a list for myself and then, you know, because I'm have this newsletter on Substack, which has become such a great um, kind of space for conversation with readers. 
and other thinkers, I decided to to put it up there in case it was useful to others. Very useful. And I also went through these questions with my partner, which was a lot of fun. And I thought it might be fun here to go through a couple of the questions and for you and I to swap answers just to kind of give people a sense of, for me, this is like just a really revelatory exercise. And so I thought that would be a fun thing to do. Are you game for it? Of course. Let's do it. All right. So I will, I will respond to this one first. When were you genuinely surprised in the past year? And mine was uh, when I followed my intuition, which resulted in me quite suddenly buying a house and moving to upstate New York, and um, also in me canceling some Thanksgiving plans that I had so that I would be open to invitations from new people upstate, which resulted in me meeting my new girlfriend, who I'm absolutely smitten with. Oh, my God. That's amazing. It's a good surprises. What? When you say intuition, can you describe what it felt like? Like, was it like you literally had a a premonition that you should move and leave your Thanksgiving free? Like, was it that concrete? Those were like two separate instances. So one was, it's a very long story, which I probably don't want to take up too much of the podcast with, but it literally involved me like working on planning an event. And then in this moment, I got this... um, just like thought that was like, you should Google like barns in the Catskills. <laughs> like, and then I did. And then I like found this barn, which I didn't end up buying, but then it led me to this house, which I did end up buying. And then like the Thanksgiving thing was like kind of a totally separate thing. Um, but yeah, that's kind but of- But also a like concrete feeling that you should leave your Thanksgiving and un- Yeah, like a definite, you know, Yeah, it's interesting. Intuition is an interesting thing, you know, and I feel like the more kind of embodied you get and the more tapped in you get, you can kind of turn the, you can turn the volume up a little bit. Yeah. Wow. That is so cool. I had a far less dramatic, although to some people quite dramatic surprise, which is that I learned in my 39th year on this earth that I like cooking. Um, So I have historically never cooked like among my friends it's like everyone knows if we're gonna do dinner like Courtney will bring the drinks or you know (laughs) I can arrange food on a plate there's a lot of jokes about my ability to make meat art with like prosciutto and salami and stuff but I like I just have never cooked so I live in this co-housing community and we every Thursday night and Sunday night we all eat together in a communal kitchen space. We all have our own kitchens as well, but two nights a week we eat together, which means, you know, a few times over the course of a quarter, my family needs to cook for 25 people. So for a long time, I was just taking care of my kids while my husband did that. Um, and that was sort of our division of labor and I would help clean up, but I wasn't part of the cooking. And then he now is, um, doing this really big job where he just doesn't have as much bandwidth for that kind of thing. And so by necessity, I started trying to figure out, can I cook a meal for 25 people? Turns out I really love cooking for a huge group of people, particularly if I can like have a beer and a good podcast and I like have enough time to really like enjoy the sensuality of it and not feel rushed or judged or like any of those things. Maybe this is all just basically like a mom's chance to be alone also is part of it is like if other people (laughs) prepare my kids and I get to do this. Um, But I deeply enjoyed it. And it was such a cool thing because I think I often experience being 
really bored with myself, like getting back to maybe this first question thing. I like, I have this certain way of experiencing the world. Like I show up as myself, like even when I've like moved different times and I'm like, I'm going to be a new person in this setting. It's like, everyone's like, Oh, you're the same person. I'm like, yeah, I'm the same person. I'm just like, so (laughs) who I am. And so it was such a delight to be like, Oh, I never saw this coming. Like it's something I'm totally loving. I'm totally new at all my friends who've known me forever. thinks it's hilarious to the point that someone ordered me a, like a platter that engraved on it says, look, Courtney can cook too. So now I have my own platter to like serve people the, my patient dishes that I'm learning how to make. So that was my biggest surprise last year. That's wonderful. I hope that I suddenly discover I love cooking at some point. I'm, I'm past my 39th year, but maybe there's still hope. Yes. Well, I think that's the, that's the best part is like, there's still hope for anything. If I, I mean, that's what my friends would tell you that this was a totally totally small chance of happening. All right. So let's take this kind of, this kind of deeper one. And if this, if this one's too personal to share your answer, then you can, you can take a pass on it. Um, but why don't you answer this one first? Where and with whom were you most resentful in the past year? Well, this is quite personal, but I'm down. Um, so I am in a family. I have a, a male partner. I have two little kids. Um, you've probably read a thousand think pieces, or maybe you've avoided them, but about this particular predicament, which is like, you know, how you have these super feminist relationships and then you have kids and then you fall into these gender traps, et cetera. So my husband and I have not, we didn't fully fall into gender traps in part because this cooking thing I just mentioned, he's deeply domestic. He like loves cleaning. He loves cooking. Um, but I, we do fall into gender stereotypes in the sense that I am like a really intensely fascinated and committed mother. Like I love being with my kids, like super nourishing. Like that's the kind of mom I was raised with. And it's the kind of mom that I love being, but that also means spending a lot of time with my kids and doing a lot of primary caregiving. So, and I watched my own parents, um, struggle with this. I mean, my dad, my dad was a feminist. My mom was always a feminist. My dad was a feminist and like sort of wanted to show up as a super present parent. And in some ways he was able to do that in other ways, his job really took over. So, um, as I've been navigating the new season of life of being a mom and having kids and, you know, having a male partner and all this stuff, I've been really conscientious about my own resentment. Um, and so over the past, I'd say year or two, I've done a lot of like both therapy, but also just like talking to other women. I'm part of a women's group talking to my mom, like really trying to live a very conscious path around resentment. Um, and I'm so proud of the work I've done around that. I mean, this probably fits into other questions on this list, but I think, you know, someone might look at my resume and think like, oh, you know, she's published books or she has an honorary PhD or whatever. That must be her proudest thing. No, like dealing with my own um, resentment and, and relationship with resentment and trying to kind of break the generational curse, I would put it in my family around women feeling resentful to me feels like much more courageous um, work and work that like I'm very proud to do in honor of my own daughters and um, and in honor of my own mother in a way. So um, I would say that's where it's at for me. What about you? 
Mine was um, where I was most resentful was actually toward myself and my body. I went through this kind of long and quite painful sort of like karmic review over the past year, which I actually discussed in the first podcast of the season. And it involves sort of delving pretty deeply into a lot of guilt over past actions. And I've also just been dealing with this very irritating ongoing health issue related to my voice. And so that's made me rather angry with my body at times. (laughs) So that was an interesting this is an interesting twist, but right, it's so interesting to see like how vastly different <laughs> the answers to these questions come out. And so I want to do one yeah. one final one, um, which was your question: If you had to articulate a mantra for the coming year, what would it be? Do you want to go first? Yeah. So I'm working on this book about white parents and school integration, and anyone who has been like anywhere near public school systems, particularly like urban school systems, like I'm experiencing here in Oakland, um, know that it's a total shit show. It's like deeply complicated. It's heartbreaking. It's desperate. It's all these things. Um, and I'm trying to write a really good book about it. And I have days where I'm just so deeply overwhelmed by the amount of information, by the contentiousness in the space um, that I feel like I've picked a total fool's errand. So I haven't, I'm trying to think if I've like articulated a clear mantra exactly, but it, it is, um, it is like the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Like that feels like something I'm holding on to, but it's also something about mm-hmm. um, kind of like clarity it's, it's simplicity on the side of complexity or um, clarity with sort of a deep bow of humility. You know, like I am trying to say something real and true about being a white mother in this moment, in this country, in this city, sending my daughter to a public school that is by other people's standards failing. Um, but I am also like deeply humbled by this inquiry and the ways in which it's so, 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 so hard to write about education, but also to write about parenting and to write about people's relationship with their own children and people's relationship with race. And um, so I think I'm just trying to hold on to it's when I'm overwhelmed or when things feel highly complex, that's not a signal that I shouldn't have picked this book project, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a signal that, that like, you know, it's a, it's a deeply challenging and worthwhile project. And that the more I can keep being kind of a clarity seeking, um, creature, but also surrender to the fact that it is just deeply complex and, and be humble in the face of that. So it's not like, you know, I wish I had like a cleaner, crisper mantra, cause that would probably help me a lot. Maybe I'll work on that after this <laughs> podcast, but, um, <laughs> but that's the gist of it. What about you? Yeah, well, and I'll um, link to in the show notes, um, you've already written a number of pieces um, for On Being, kind of, you know, starting to delve into this incredibly complex topic. And I'll link to some of those in the show notes so folks can um, click through and, you know, maybe get a little bit of a better grasp of kind of, you know, the issues that you're talking about and the complexity of it. And there's some just really beautiful stories about you, you know, talking to other people and and why they've made certain choices about where they're sending their children to school. It's it's a really rich topic. Um, 
my mantra was, I'm open to accepting as much support as I give. Wow. Simple. That's a deep one. <laughs> For me, it is. So one of the things I wanted to ask you and was, did you, and it seemed like you almost started to touch on it. Like for me, when I did this exercise of going through these 20 questions, which I will of course be linking to in the show notes so other folks can, can check them out. Um, were there certain like themes that kind of bubbled up for you really strongly? Cause that, that definitely happened for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I think part of it is also, I just turned 40 and I think mm -hmm. it was like, the questions turning 40, like it, it gets back to the, the piece about what I'm most proud of in terms of the inner emotional work I've done. I think I'm at a place in my life where, uh, I'm very grateful to have gotten to do a lot of work that I'm care about a lot and that I'm, pr I'm proud of. I mean, I don't, I'm like anybody else, any other creative person who like looks back at books I've written or whatever and is embarrassed and thinks of like 20 different ways <laughs> I would have done it differently. But um, in general, I feel like I've been blessed with this like incredibly interesting career and I've been able to do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and I'm going to keep doing that cool stuff and keep being deeply grateful for my career. But I think at 40, I just feel so clear that like the stuff that I really want to rise to the occasion of is not necessarily professional. I mean, there is a professional impact of it, but is really about like the inner emotional work of showing up as a human in the kindest, you know, sort of most thoughtful way I can, um, of knowing myself and, uh, and being capable of change and being capable of receiving feedback and being capable of giving feedback and like all these very, uh, like all grown up skills from my perspective that, um, I want to keep doing and keep modeling, um, for my kids and for my partner and for my friends and, um, and having them modeled back for me. So that's, I think that was a real clarity for me was just like, yeah, the professional stuff is important. And I'm, as anyone would tell you, like deeply focused on work. I love working. Um, but I am at this moment of like turning 40, very clear that I, investing in the relationships and investing in my own kind of self-awareness and growth uh, is something that I want to really honor and want to keep like pushing myself to do in a way that I can feel proud of my own courage around. What about you? Did you have any themes or patterns? Yeah, well, and I would say that that very much I think started to happen for me as well around <laughs> around the age of 40. For me the themes were really about there were very strong themes um about like the value of relationships around healing was one like and you know different healers that I've worked with and how powerful that's been and also just sort of themes about like being kinder to my body and being better mm -hmm. about accepting kindness from other people and and really just like allowing myself to be more embodied, you know, like yeah. a three-year-old who has no concept of time and is just living in their body. And, you know, I think when you're in that state, then you can tap a lot more into your intuition, which, you know, as I was describing, led to, you know, a bunch of sort of wonderful and and surprising outcomes in the past that's year. So awesome. Yeah. That's like one of my biggest feelings of gratitude around mothering. And I have plenty of not feelings of gratitude. So it's not all like <laughs> <laughs> uh, perfect around here, but is, uh, is the, the way that being a mom pulls you into that space and time with your kids, like what, you know, 
getting into a zone with them, you know, where we'll just like throw the kiddie pool in the grass in front of our house and like fill it with water and just do weird shit for like hours and like eat weird shit (laughs) and have weird conversations about shit. Like, it's just like, oh, what else are we here on earth to do except like this to like lose track of time (laughs) and have strange wandering bizarro conversations with each other and be in our bodies like in the sunshine sprawling around and wrestling with each other and stuff so I I do feel so grateful for that like reminder and that space and time that I think I would have a very hard time creating for myself without yeah yeah kids are pretty good space creators yeah I was also going to tell you one other funny thing I was thinking about like this turning 40 and like you're getting embodied and I'm like really honoring growth and personal growth and whatever and um my friend Wendy McNaughton who's a mutual friend of ours um and I just did this little retreat for some friends that we called ladies at the crossroads and it was basically like Mm. kind of spontaneously we're like had she and I had been having this conversation about where we were at in our careers and kind of goal setting and all these things. And then we realized like, Oh, this might be helpful for more people. So we invited a group of women that we knew were at a point in their lives where they were mostly professionally trying to figure out what to do next. And then afterwards, Wendy was talking to some guy at a party about it. And he's like, Oh, you mean your midlife crisis? And she was like, no, no, no. Like we're ladies at the crossroads. And he's like, no, you're all like about 40 freaking out about what you're doing with your lives. And we both just cracked up because it had like never crossed our minds that that was a midlife crisis. We were like, no, that's like getting a red sports car and like having sex with someone like 30 (laughs) years younger than you. Like we're like, you know, getting our Enneagram numbers and like (laughs) um, taking long hikes with our friends. So anyway, it made me happy once again to be a woman and to have amazing woman <laughs> friends because I was like I really like our version of a midlife crisis better than <laughs> I like it ladies at the crossroads I think I might have to put together one of those myself <laughs> yeah go for it so you are also you know kind of based on some of the other stuff that you've written that I've read you know you're kind of a strong advocate for asking hard questions as a way to sort of snap yourself out of the status quo. And you wrote a piece for On Being where you said, if we want to preserve our moral imaginations, we need to create communities where we can ask hard and naive questions such as, am I living with integrity? Do my values and my actions align? Am I who I believe myself to be? Could you talk a little bit more about reframing questions as a tool for expanding our moral imaginations? Yeah, I think that it's so easy. And this actually, this is where maybe our, um, our lives really dovetail, our callings really dovetail. I think in a busy life, if you're moving too fast, it's, it's incredibly easy to ask other people's questions, um, and, and accept other people's answers. Um, so one very obvious way in which this came up for me was around school choice with my kids, where when I first started to hit, Uh, school age with my daughter. And I was kind of asking around like, okay, how does preschool work? Like, how do we get in? How much does it cost? What, you know, what's the procedure? And I was getting told, and this is in the context of Oakland, but this is in a lot of big cities, like all these crazy things about trying to get your kids into particular preschools and you have to go to preschool tours. And then you have to like, you know, do all kinds of strategic things to get your kids into those preschools. And then elementary school is the same way. And so if I had been moving too fast and had been too fearful, the the thing I would have done is just tried to manage that particular assignment. I would have just been like, okay, 
I got the information. Now, how do I get her into these preschools? Who, you know, what tours do I need to show up at? Let me make the Excel spreadsheet and do this well. But instead, I was able to like take a deep breath and be like, wait a minute, like I'm going on these tours and it's like all white parents, even though we don't live in an all white city, these preschools are extremely expensive. Like what are the bigger systemic and structural issues at play here? And also like, what is my kid going to learn from me about the world and about what matters if she sees my spreadsheet and my like fearful navigating of the system that's broken and doesn't serve all kids, you know, in pursuit of it, just serving her in some, some, you know, false narrative way. Um, so that's what I mean is like taking these moments and sometimes they're really, they are fear, fearful moments because that's the way our culture is set up is to kind of, particularly for parents, like create a lot of fear, um, to, to pause in those moments and say like, okay, so like, this is what I'm being told, but like, what is my question about this moment I'm inside of and, and how might I want to navigate it differently? And it's, and it can be very hard. I mean, sometimes it's not that hard and it's, you know, you're totally rewarded for asking a different kind of question. Sometimes you ask a different kind of question and there are like huge ramifications. I mean, sending my daughter, for example, to this uh, public school in my neighborhood that's, you know, one out of 10 on greatschools.org has freaked a lot of people out. Um, and and I've had some really hard conversations with friends. And um, so there, it's it doesn't always feel that good to ask your own questions um, or to make decisions based on different questions than everybody else is making decisions based on. But I think it's worth it. <laughs> I'm still living into it, but it's certainly been worth it at other moments in my life uh, when I've done that. Right. Well, and so how did you end up kind of reframing that for yourself? Um, I think I went from a sort of like, what's best for my kid question and how can I get her whatever is best for her to a what's good for all kids and how will it help shape my kid if she sees that we are a part of pursuing that, that like our family's questions are about community and are about collective equity and about justice. And, um, and then it gets, it got really a lot easier. It was like, Oh yeah, that all makes sense to me that like, that feels really right. And now when I look at a lot, and this is part of what I'm trying to write about in the book, when I look at a lot of like white progressive culture, especially in like big cities like Oakland, I I feel like, oh, that seems really hard to live inside of the contradiction of like saying you care so much about racial justice, but then, you know, choosing to send your kid to a school that is, you know, largely white largely economically privileged mm -hmm. and like feeling this sense that you need to do some sort of quote unquote, like community service or some kind of like way of making sure your kid knows that you as a family value diversity in quotes, you know, even though you haven't make it made a choice to like live organically in proximity with people of a really wide variety of backgrounds, like that just seems exhausting to mm -hmm. me now. Um, so then it makes it much easier to be like, Oh, like we made a choice that felt uncomfortable at the time because we didn't have a lot of peers um, who were making that same choice. But ultimately, like it's it feels a lot psychically easier to live inside of the choice we made for me at this point. Right. It's more sort of directly aligned in a certain way. So then it's easy to just yeah. kind of be like, okay, 
let's yeah let's i'm not this. tap dancing like i'm like we go to school and there are hard things going on <laughs> like there's moments where i'm like you know my heart is broken at very obvious moments of like economic inequity um and i'm like oh that sucks but it sucks in a way that I can like process and process with my kid and be like, yeah, this is the real shit. Like this is the country we live in. And so it it should break our hearts. Um, And I don't want to live in a way that doesn't break my heart and then have to kind of like get close to suffering in some weird way so that I can feel like I'm really a part of things. What questions feel most pressing to you right now? Or what are the questions that you're wrestling with at the moment? Well, for this book, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, there's this incredible um, thing I just read. This woman, Barbara Johnson, who uh, came up with a concept of that people of different races sometimes see one another as, and this was her wording, an already read text, which I just Mm. thought was like so fascinating. So I, that has really like mesmerized me lately. And I've been thinking like, how do we stop seeing one another as an already read text as Barbara Johnson calls it. So like when I'm showing up in this school community or you just showing up in Oakland, like in my life, um, how do I just approach people assuming I have not read them yet? Like I don't, I don't know who they are. I don't know Mm -hmm. what makes them tick. I don't know what their first questions are, you know, getting back to, our original impulse here. Um, so that I've been thinking a lot about, um, I've been thinking a lot about how do you measure the worth of a community or is it even possible to measure the worth of a community? Because, you know, one of the shifts I'm trying to make in the book is to stop seeing school choice as a consumer, um, experience. Like I have to shop around and find Mm -hmm. the best school for my kid, but like what community do you want to be a part of? Um, and when you start asking that question, then it gets really confusing of like, how do you measure, you know, certainly achievement um, tests, standardized tests, they don't measure the worth of a community, but it is very hard otherwise to kind of describe and measure and quantify and like market and kind of popularize what a community is about. Or like I live in this co-housing community and it's similarly like, it's hard to explain. Like if you haven't lived inside of this ecosystem and seen like, Oh, like the measure of the worth of this community is that, um, you know, I needed sesame oil yesterday because of course my newfound love of cooking and, you know, there was some in the common house. And then when I walked in, I saw that Nathan was there and he was studying for his nursing degree. And I was able to say, Oh, how's it going? Give him a little bit of emotional support. So I got my sesame oil and Nathan got his emotional support for nursing school. And then like, I went on with my day, like that's not something you can quantify. So I'm, I'm interested in like, we live in such a, a quantifiable society. Like people want numbers, they want metrics. And I understand why, like we need to understand if kids are learning or if, or if, you know, neighborhoods are healthy. Um, but I'm a little confused about that. Yeah, that is that is a lot of uh, complex questions. And something you were saying, well, a couple of things. I love that. It's so interesting, the idea of already read texts and that and something else you were saying about, you know, like if you haven't lived inside a community, like you wouldn't understand this. I was, I met this guy the other day who is studying this, um, method of therapy called Hakomi, which is like a mindful somatic, like experiential Hmm. form of therapy. And he was explaining to me 
the different kind of premises that it's based on. And one of them is nonviolence. And he was sharing with me this idea that all nonviolent or excuse me, all violence stems from the idea that you think like you could do something better. And then he was telling me that they made them do this exercise um, to sort of demonstrate that. And, you know, sort of like everyone like got into seated meditation and, you know, they're kind of there and they're sitting and they were like, okay, like now I want you to imagine that, you know, you are, um, you know, you're looking at someone and then you are able to become like completely like embodied as that person and you know everything that that person knows and you have every little bit of history that that person has and you've had every experience that that person has and then I want you to think like I can do it better and you know they're talking about how like awful (laughs) that makes you feel like when you really try to like embody yourself as someone else and really like imagine that you had had all of their experiences and all of their life history and that you still might think that you could do it better like that it is like really violent. That is so powerful. Yeah, super interesting concept, but very much like it, sort of the, you know, along with that idea of seeing people as already red text or thinking that you know or that, you know, that you could like do something better than them if you were in that situation. So compelling. Because, I mean, one of the things there's a, taking it back to this education context, there's um, some people who say like, what if all schools were actually good schools? Like we have this dichotomy of bad schools and good schools. And like, you know, we want to get our kids into the good schools, not the bad schools. And oftentimes that's just a proxy for race. And there's like so many things wrong with it. But, you know, one of the the thinkers, this guy, Jack Schneider asks like, what if all schools were good schools? And that kind of brings me back to this same question of like, you know, like, why do we have this baseline assumption that everything needs to be improved and some assumption about what that would even mean? Like what is improvement? Um, which I think particularly for people who come from privileged backgrounds, um, whether it's, you know, whiteness or maleness or whatever, it's just so, uh, obsessive. It's like addictive to think that you, can improve things and and this is you know where white saviorism and so many other things come into play but it's I, I find that framing just so powerful I think that would be like an incredible spiritual practice for anyone with any form of privilege it seems only appropriate that Courtney left me and us with another big question to mull over what is improvement In a culture so obsessed with self-help, it's an important question to investigate. One that forces us to re-examine the very foundation on which so many of our knee-jerk reactions are based. What if nothing needed to be improved? What if you were fine just the way you are right now? Well, in that case, I'd probably be out of a job, and you might just want to go take a nap right now, which might not be the worst outcome. But the real point of this episode was to entice you to meditate on Courtney's list of 20 questions, which I think are quite revealing if you take the time to sit down and really mull them over. And at least in my case, they really shined a light on what I feel is valuable and meaningful versus what our culture tells us is valuable and meaningful. Maybe it will have the same impact on you. Just scroll down to the resources section of the show notes to get the link. If you're a fan of this show, you should also know that I have a lovingly crafted online course that's all about how to bring the principles we talk about on this show into your daily work and life. 
The course is called Reset, and it's basically a cosmic tune-up for your workday. A four-week program designed and created by me that will teach you how to work in a way that's intentional, energizing, and inspiring. It's all about learning how to move from an over-busy, speed-obsessed way of working into what I call a heart-centered approach to productivity, an approach to work that's sustainable and fulfilling. If you're ready to recalibrate the way you work, visit reset-course.com to learn more. Once again, that's reset-course.com. As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for additional audio magic. If this episode sparks some new ideas for you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a link to the reviews page right down there in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and remember to hurry slowly.